Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week, we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria to see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we're big fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So we are back now for week number two of Palestine. This is our very first two-part episode, and we will finally be getting to the anthem and the food and all that fun stuff today. However, last (laughs) week we covered many millennia. It took us about an hour. This week we are covering 100 years. I have to say, I'm really excited to know what happens. It's... It's so complex and difficult to say who's right at any point in this story. It's we'll we'll get into it a bit. Let's just start with a recap of where we finished off last week. Thank you. So we finished off last week right at the end of World War One and the future of Palestine was being determined at the end of World War I by three separate and completely contradictory statements that had been made by Britain. So the first is the Hussein McMahon correspondence. And this was a series of letters between uh, the Emir of Mecca and uh, Lord McMahon of the UK. And a quote from this that sums up the basic statement it had was uh, great britain is prepared to recognize and uphold the independence of the arabs in all the regions lying within the frontiers proposed by the sharif of mecca which would include palestine sure uh after the hussein mcmahon correspondence was the sykes pico agreement and that is where britain france and russia meet in secret and divide up between themselves all of the properties of the Ottoman Empire. Right. This was done before the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but was done on the assumption that the Ottoman Empire was falling at the end of the war. Okay. Then finally, after the Sykes-Picot Agreement, is the Balfour Declaration. I'm sorry, I have an off-topic question. Sure. Is that Pico like the orange Pico T? P-I-C-O-T. Ah, different Pico. Yeah. All right, carry on. Thank you. Uh, So the third... And final contradictory declaration is the Balfour Declaration, and that is where the British government essentially tacitly endorses the creation of a Jewish state within Palestine. Mm. So at the end of World War I, England is now left in the deeply unenviable position of actually having to figure out what to do with all of these (laughs) contradicting promises. Honestly, they deserve it. Yeah, no, th- I mean, they made their bed and now they they're did. lying in it. But I mean, they're hardly the ones that are actually going to suffer because yeah, of this. Yeah, that's true also. Uh, so in 1920, a general Syrian Congress was held at Damascus. And in this, the Balfour Declaration was rejected in favor of a united Syria that included Palestine. Okay. So this proposal at the Syrian Congress is let's just have all of this be Syria, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, So Faisal I was elected king. His father was Hussein ibn Ali of the Hussein McMahon correspondence. So his father had been the emir of Mecca. Okay. Um, 
a large motivation for this Syrian Congress was the resistance against a Jewish state being created in Palestine. Mm -hmm. This movement had gained a lot of momentum since the publication of Der Judenstadt, which we learned about at the end of the last episode is one of the first sort of Zionist pieces that has been written. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very interesting. So a Zionist Congress would be held in Switzerland and Zionist leaders would begin visiting Palestine as early as 1907. Okay. So the first anti-Zionist newspaper in Palestine, like against the foundation of a Jewish homeland here, was began being published in 1908. Okay. So even before World War One breaks out, mm-hmm. this tension is starting to build. It's still happening, yeah. Uh, and now World War One is over, and we're dealing with all of these conflicting promises from the British. Mm-hmm. So. Ultimately, the fate of Palestine after the war would be finally decided at what was known as the Conference of San Remo. At the Conference of San Remo, the Ottoman Empire was officially abolished. Like, on paper, they're done. But it left provisions for an independent Armenia and Kurdistan. Okay. That's not going to be important to us this episode, but that's going to be immensely important when we talk about Turkey and Armenia. Okay. Uh, The other result of this conference was the creation of two Class A mandates. So Syria and Lebanon were mandated to France. Palestine and Iraq were mandated to the UK. Within the same year, Faisal, the the king who was elected at that Syrian Congress, had been expelled from Syria and would ultimately flee to London. The UK would later make him the king of Iraq and would also make his brother Abdullah king of Jordan. So we will be learning more about Faisal and Abdullah again in the relevant episodes. Yes. Um, So around this time, anti-Zionist riots are starting to break out within the boundaries of Jerusalem. The English would ultimately appoint the first high commissioner of the region to be Sir Herbert Samuel, and he like was a Zionist. So he would officially start implementing the Balfour Declaration when he came in as high commissioner. Sorry, pardon my ignorance here. Totally. Can you define Zionism for me? Yes. So for the purposes, at least of this episode, Zionist is going to mean a person who supports the creation of a Jewish homeland okay. in okay. Palestine. Okay. So is it, is it all Jewish people? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Um, I do think there's like immensely widespread support for the Zionist movement uh, within the worldwide Jewish community. I think it would it will really get galvanized when we hit World War Two and the Holocaust. And of course, the Jewish people want a safe place to live. Of course. Uh, But that we're not there yet. Right. Okay. thank you. Uh, So basically, these riots breaking out in Jerusalem are these Arab citizens who are resisting the idea that their land would be given away to Mm -hmm. a Jewish homeland. Uh, So Sir Herbert Samuel, this first high commissioner, uh, officially implements the Balfour Declaration and declares a quota of Jewish immigrants for the next year. Okay. So he is like making it happen. He Mm -hmm. gives them numbers that they have to meet of the number of Jewish people they're bringing in. So in 1920, Palestine would convene an Arab Executive Congress that rejected the Balfour Declaration and stated that Palestine was an independent Arabic entity. This was never recognized by the British government, but is really the first statement that we have of Palestinians coming together to say we are an independent entity and this is what we want. Mm -hmm. And some form of, of this Arab Executive Congress's demands would be 
I mean, t- for a certain population, what they're still asking for to this day. So... In 1922, the League of Nations approved Britain's mandate plan for Palestine. That did a couple of things. So if you are ever reading about Palestine and you see the phrase mandatory Palestine, Mm -hmm. this was really confusing the hell out of me (laughs) in my early research. I thought before I got to this point, I thought we were split at some point into Palestine and mandatory Palestine. Mm -hmm. Mandatory Palestine just refers to all of Palestine during the period it is under British mandate. Oh, I see. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Ultimately, that's going to be from 1922 to 1948, I believe, but we'll get to that. Uh, So Palestine was made distinct from all lands east of the Jordan River in this mandate. So that means there's now the official separation between what is Palestine and the kingdom of Transjordan, which would then in the late forties become the kingdom of Jordan. Okay. Uh, so this league of nations mandate is when those two regions are made distinct from each other on like UN, well, I guess league of nations paper, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's now sworn into law. The other thing is that the Balfour declaration would be written directly into the mandate and described the creation of a Jewish agency to advise the palette, Palestinian administration in the creation of a Jewish national home. Okay. Transjordan, however, was excluded from the Balfour Declaration. So we're just talking about Palestine now. We're going to have a lot of dealings with Jordan over the next little while, but they're not they're not subject to the creation of Israel in the same way that Palestine is okay. going to be. Does Jordan touch Palestine? Is yes. there a border there? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, they they both touch the Jordan River. Right. Okay. Yeah. Close enough. Uh, remember the you'll you'll hear the phrase the West Bank mm-hmm. a lot when we're talking about Palestine. We'll yeah. get a lot into what makes the West Bank distinct later on, but that is the West Bank of the Jordan River or like the oh. eastern boundary of Palestine. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Uh, so for much of the remainder of the 1920s, it was pretty low key in terms of big events, but tensions are still ratcheting way the hell up. Mm-hmm. Like. A lot of the infrastructure in the area was modernized during the period by the the English uh, commission, but there was a huge sort of power grab between the Jewish and Arab communities trying to grab up as much land and money and, and sway over the population as they could because at some point in the future, we're going to draw lines and we need to show that our side deserves the bigger half. Mm-hmm. I feel it's very awkward also because if you draw that line, like there's already people living on both sides of it. Oh, we'll get into that. And then you got to be like, sorry, can you just, it's a little bit like India and Pakistan kind of. a Absolutely. Yeah. You just got to go over here now. And people are like, no, why would I do that? I've been here my whole life. And I think we're not going to get too much into the British occupation of India. We're not really going to get into it at all, but I do think there are parts of, the British occupation of Palestine that might have gone differently had they not been expending so many of their mm. resources on India. Yeah, fair point. I guess we will see more into that when we do India also. Yeah. So in 1929, there's a conflict over sort of how each religion is allowed to use the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, as it's sometimes known. And that 
the Western Wall is the last remaining piece of the Second Temple of Jerusalem that we learned about in part one. Uh, so it is incredibly sacred to the Jewish people for this reason. I've definitely heard about it. It is sacred to Muslim people because it stands on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock was built now like 1,300 years ago at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. So you can say the Dome of the Rock is more recent, but it's not like it's recent. It's yeah. still incredibly <laughs> ancient. Yes. Is this the one where people put the papers in it? I'm not sure, to be honest. Okay, I might be thinking of something else. Um, Several hundred people were killed in these clashes over the use of the Western Wall. Okay. These conflicts really brought to global attention how irresponsible Britain's handling of the situation had been. It was becoming increasingly clear to everyone in the world that there was no way Britain could possibly fulfill their promises to both the Zionists and the Arabs. Mm -hmm. The promises were in direct conflict with each other. Yeah. So the Nazis rising to power in 1933 coincided with obviously a huge wave of anti-Semitism across all of Europe. Mm -hmm. So that leads to a massive influx of Jewish immigrants to Palestine that's now growing throughout the 1930s. By 1936, the Jewish population makes up about 400,000 of a total population of 1.2 million, so about a third of the population. There were no shortage of Arab immigrants during this period as well. This is just a period where everyone's coming to Palestine, and the majority of the Arabic residents during this period are still working in agriculture, but they are starting to shift into construction and trades and moving into the cities. In late 1935, a collective of Arab political parties would demand a stop to Jewish immigration and land transfer. Ultimately, ultimately, this proposal would be rejected, which was one of the causes for the Arab Revolt of 1936. And the Arab Revolt is one of the big Mm. events. Uh, So the revolt was began by followers of a guy named Sheikh Iz al-Din al-Qassam, and the British had killed him in 1935. But Qassam's followers had attacked a convoy of trucks then in April 1936, killing two Jewish drivers. The next day, two Palestinian workers were killed by a Zionist paramilitary group, and the violence escalated from there. This led to the forming of what was known as the Arab Higher Committee, and they're going to be one of the foremost voices, especially like the foremost Arabic voice in the discussion of what is to be done with Palestine over the next few decades. Mm. So the AHC, uh, which is what we're going to call the Arab Higher Committee, calls for a general strike and non-payment of taxes to the British government. The general strike would be launched by early May and was very widely observed across the country. Arabs started forming guerrilla military forces at this point and were targeting British and Zionist forces in the region. Okay. So the British police presence in the region starts to really grow at this point and the Palestinians start to really be subjected to a, a police state under the British. They're being pulled out of their homes. Their homes are being torn apart oh. and searched. They're being beaten, and tortured. There's a lot of Palestinian historical buildings being destroyed in the process. That's awful. So England would essentially call a commission to discover the root causes of the revolt in 1936, which is just 
such a fuck you to the whole world. Everyone knows what caused this revolt. It couldn't be more clear. But either they, my understanding, and this is not something that any of the sources said, but seems like the obvious explanation, Mm -hmm. is they're trying to come up with anything they can say that makes it not their fault. Uh, Just go home. (laughs) Lord Peel is put in charge of this commission and it would become known as the Peel Commission. I think I've heard of that too. So by October, yeah. Okay. By October, the effects of six months of general striking are really starting to be felt within the Palestinian community. So the strike is called off and the AHC agrees to meet with the Peel Commission. The violence cooled off a little bit while the commission worked, Mm -hmm. but the commission also took nine or ten months to publish their findings. So people started getting pretty impatient again, and the violence started to crank back up towards the end of that period. In July of 1937, the Peel Commission published their findings. The British could not possibly complete their objectives as laid out in Palestine as these objectives were in direct conflict with each other. Peel recommended the partition of Palestine into three distinct zones, an Arab state, a Jewish state, and a neutral state that contained the holy places in dispute. So, for example, okay. Jerusalem would be uh, okay. in the neutral a, part. basically run by the, the League of Nations, is, All I right. think, his uh, proposal here. I bet that went over really well, though. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was a big hit. Uh, the second phase of the Arab Revolt starts in 1937 after the publication of the Peel Commission. <laughs> British martial law would be declared in September of 1937. The Zionists didn't want a partition state either, but the state that the Peel Commission had laid out as like, this is what we would give to the Jewish people was way bigger than Mm. what he wanted to give to the Palestinians. Yeah. So Zionists were not thrilled, but ultimately supported the plan because they're getting the better end of the deal. I don't blame them, kind of. Palestinians are not willing to cede so much of their land, and the commission also advocated for forcibly removing Arab residents from the area they were giving to the Jewish state and moving them to Transjordan. No. Uh, So the revolt gained significant ground in the second phase, and the rebels began to create their own infrastructure to replace the buildings that the British had built. Mm -hmm. So we're talking courts, post offices, etc., In this period, the AHC, and for that matter, all Palestinian political parties were outlawed by the British. The British deployed tanks and airplanes to the region and established detention camps, and this leads to the third phase of the revolt, which would last from late 1938 to mid-1939. And what happens that really starts to end the revolt is in early 1939, the British begin subsidizing Jewish militias on the ground. Okay, so this is also like mid-World War II, kind of, almost. 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 World War II is going to start in 1939. Right, right. Because I feel like then the British are going to be like, "Uh uh-oh, we have other things to worry about, too. Yeah, oh, here it is, September 1939. So I think it's January or February that the British start subsidizing these Jewish troops to support them in their fight against the rebellion. Right. Uh. Another British commission had been published in late 1938 that this time was backing away from the idea of a partition, but 
I think literally the day they published it, they launched a full offensive against the Palestinians. (laughs) So they like (laughs) kind of offered them something they wanted, but did it at the same time that they launched this offensive. That tends not to work super great. I don't understand what the British were thinking here. I can't help you. (laughs) Ultimately, the, the AHC would be exiled, uh, almost all of them at some point between 1938 and 1939 with local leadership lacking on the ground and the, the British forces now being subsidized by the Jewish forces Mm -hmm. or being supplemented by the Jewish forces. The rebellion ultimately comes to an end. And I, I also don't really understand why it ends the way it does because the Arab revolt seems like it was completely squashed at this point. But in May of 1939, the British government would publish what they call the White Paper of 1939. Mm -hmm. And this actually ceded to a lot of the Palestinian demands. Not all of them, not near all of them. Yeah. But it, um, for the next five years, it would limit Jewish immigration to 15,000 per year. And after that, Jewish immigration would be subject to, and I have this in quotes because no one wanted to explain it any further. Okay acquiescence by the Arab administration. Okay. I couldn't find any further explanation of what that meant, or even if they defined it any further at the time. So it's okay that I'm confused. Yeah, basically for the next five years, they are allowed up to 15,000 Jewish immigrants. Mm -hmm. After that, it's whether the Arab government says you can or not. Right, okay. Um... Jews would only be allowed to hold or purchase land in a small portion of Palestine under the white paper, Mm -hmm. and an independent state in Palestine would come up for debate in 10 years. Okay. So So they're like putting a Band-Aid on it. Yeah, and they're saying, hey, when 10 years rolls around, maybe we'll talk about making you an independent nation. And this is still the British who are... Palestine at this point in history has never been a country. Right. We should be clear about that. Yes, that's true. That's true. It just, yeah, okay. (laughs) It seems like almost something like a negligent parrot does. (laughs) Be like, we'll talk about it next month, hoping something changes. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Even though a lot of the stuff that was contained in the white paper was good news for Palestinians, the AHC would ultimately reject the paper largely just out of distrust of the English. Mm -hmm. Why would we believe anything you have to say? I don't blame them. (laughs) And also because while there was a clause that included, let's discuss an independent state in 10 years, it also included, what do we do if the answer is no? And (laughs) the AHC didn't want there to be the possibility of the answer being no. Yeah. So they would ultimately reject the white paper. The Zionists felt completely betrayed yes. by the English at the publication of this paper. And I can see why Yeah, they, they been have been one of the main supporters of the Zionist movement up until this point. And, and all of ditched. a sudden they turn around and ditch. Yeah. yeah. And this is really the end of any sort of official British involvement in the Zionist movement. Like, okay. obviously there will be British Zionists, yeah. but this is the British government's end of their involvement. That was probably the right choice. So, 
At this point, there are nearly 500,000 Jewish people in Palestine mm-hmm. out of a population of one and a half million total. So uh, still about a third of the population, but mm-hmm. the total population has grown. Yeah. And Tel Aviv has emerged as an all-Jewish city with a population of about 150,000 in okay. 1939. Okay. So in September of 1939, World War II breaks out. Mm-hmm. Uh A quote that I found really interesting, considering the white paper had only been published four months earlier, David Ben-Gurion, who is at this point a major Zionist leader and would later become the first Israeli prime minister, Mm -hmm. is quoted at the beginning of World War II as saying, we shall fight beside Great Britain in this war as if there was no white paper, and we shall fight the white paper as if there was no war. Oh, that's a good quote. Yeah. I wish I'd said that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or something as eloquent and smart as that. So during this period, the UK continues trying to suppress Jewish immigration to Palestine. And that leads to a number of violent clashes between the UK and the Zionists. Mm -hmm. The most notable of these is the sinking of the SS Patria in late 1940. And that's a British ocean liner that is sunk by Zionist forces and over 200 are killed. So support grows both in the Zionist community and worldwide for the idea that this sort of growing Jewish community in Palestine should have their own army to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, uh, Amin al-Husseini, who is the leader of the AHC, he's been in exile for years. He's sort of at this point not really a leader in Palestine. Where like, did he go again? I am not sure off the top of... I think he's actually maybe in Germany at this point. We'll get into this. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so Amin al-Husseini, his exact role in the Holocaust has been debated, Mm -hmm. but he was friendly with Hitler. And, I mean, Palestine doesn't exist as a political entity right now. Mm -hmm. Sort of the closest thing we have is the AHC going, Palestine should exist as a political entity. Mm Mm-hmm. And Amin al-Husseini, the leader of the AHC, makes appeals to the region that they should ally with the Axis powers and retaliate against the UK and the Zionists. Mm-hmm. It didn't work, yeah. but he was, at the time, the face of Palestine yeah. worldwide. So it's not a good look for the country, even though, as far as I can tell, no one in the country listened to him. Still, though, it's still changing global perception of what's happening in Palestine. I did not know any of this. Right. I didn't know. We talked about World War Two when I was in school for like a long time. We did not talk about. I knew virtually nothing of of all the stuff I'm going through today. Amazing. Such a learning curve. (laughs) Look at us. (laughs) So in 1940, uh, there is a. Zionist militant group formed known as Lehi, L-E-H-I, also known sometimes as the Stern Gang. Uh, It seems the Stern Gang is uh, a pretty pejorative way of talking about them, as far as I can tell. Uh, This group was founded after the the British had assassinated. Well, I guess they had found they had been founded by this guy named Abraham Stern. The British would assassinate Stern and then the group would radicalize from there. Mm. Uh, so the Stern gang or Lehi is going to be 
responsible for a lot of the Zionist violence in the coming year. They're the extremists. Okay. Uh, they have split from the Irgun, which is a Zionist militia, which has itself split from the Haganah. Uh, the Haganah and the Irgun work together to a degree. Okay. Uh, they're not sort of at odds. I think Lehi takes it too far for anyone else. Okay. Uh, but the Haganah are the direct historical predecessors to the modern Israeli defense force. Okay. Okay. So that's a lot of branching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, worldwide support for Zionism continues to grow after world war II, uh, especially because at the end of world war II, the general public of the world discovered the full extent of the yeah. Nazi concentration camps. And it's, like, people were not only rightfully sympathetic towards the Jewish people for having under endured some of the worst monstrosities that have ever been carried out in human history, mm -hmm. but there's also just the simple logistical issue of we now have millions of displaced Jews. What do we do with them? Yeah, that's true. People who moved and lost their homes and, like, yeah, that's a whole situation, isn't it? So... It's around the end of World War II that America would begin getting officially involved with the question of Zionism. Okay, here they come. <laughs> <laughs> uh, newly elected President Harry Truman would request that 100,000 Jews be admitted to Palestine in 1945. The U.S. House of Representatives would take it a step further than that even and request that there be unrestricted Jewish immigration to Palestine I believe the phrase was up to the absorptive capacity of its economic of its economy. Okay. So like as many as, as you can many take. as you can afford to take into your country, that's what we're requesting you take. Okay. Does Palestine exist now? Nope. Mandatory okay. Palestine does. Right, mandatory Palestine. I have to that name throws me M mandatory. But that's also a British entity. I get it. It's <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so around the same time that all of this is happening with the U.S., the Alexandria Protocol is issued. Uh, this is a joint declaration from five Arab states. Uh, that would be Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Transjordan, mm -hmm. declaring a League of Arab States and supporting the independence of Palestine. So the, the League of Arab States, uh, which I believe is now just the Arab League, still exists. Okay. Uh, it has gone through some changes, but uh, this is the beginning of one of the most important political entities in the Arab world, as far as I can see. Um, Saudi Arabia and Yemen would also later sign the declaration, and the Arab League would officially come into existence in 1945. Okay. By December of 1945, they had called for a boycott of Zionist goods. In 1946... Lehi would detonate part of the King David Hotel, which would kill uh, 90 people. I believe it was a wing containing British diplomats that was detonated. Okay. Uh, in 1946, a summit is held in Blue Dawn, Syria, in which the Arab League declares that if the rights of Arabs are not respected in Palestine, then members of the League will not be willing to come to the table with the Western world when it comes to discussions of oil and other, like, important trading goods that are coming out of the Middle East. Yeah. So this summit 
the one in Syria reestablishes the AHC and again makes Amin al Husseini the chair of it for some fucking reason. Um, I I can't do a deep dive into Amin al Husseini. His like, there's at least some things in the history of this episode that we can all just agree are facts, whether or not we agree on what they mean. Yeah. I don't think there's a ton of facts we all agree on when it comes to Amin al-Husseini's life. He is, to some people, Hitler's right-hand man. He is, to some people, a shining paragon of Arabic independence. And I don't know that anyone really sees him as anything in between. Okay. Um, Okay. There's a quote I found uh, from a guy named Robert Fisk. And full disclosure, Robert Fisk is a journalist who is known for criticizing the Israeli government and their treatment of Palestine. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think that discounts the following quote. Uh, Speaking of Amin al-Husseini, Robert Fisk says... Merely to discuss his life is to be caught up in the Arab-Israeli propaganda war, to make an impartial assessment of the man's career, or for that matter, an unbiased history of the Arab-Israeli dispute, is like trying to ride two bicycles at the same time. Which is essentially what you've been doing the whole time you researched this. The whole time, yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm really trying not to come out too firmly on one side. We are going to get a little bit more of sort of Israel's side of the story when we do... Israel, but I'm I'm trying to give Palestine's side without being too biased, which is a a tightrope that doesn't exist at some points. No, it's very hard when you have to also like only use the resources that are available to you. And as we are not like a walking reference library, unfortunately, um, it, it is somewhat limited even in like what you can read and absorb to then draw your own conclusions. Yeah, it's a lot of layers, like the bias of the person who research that and the people that they talk to and then you on top of all that it's a whole it's a whole big bias sandwich oh yeah ride that bicycle (laughs) both of them so uh with tensions rising and the uk financially exhausted from the war and their occupation of india this is i think the juncture where if india had gone differently palestine might have gone differently Mm -hmm. um The UK holds a conference in 1947, basically to just say, let's try and finish this all up, get it solved (laughs) now and once and for all. It obviously didn't get anywhere. No. So they brought the issue to the newly created United Nations. Mm -hmm. In November of 1947, the UN passed Resolution 181, recommending the partition of uh, Palestine. Again, just the region, the Palestine state does not exist. Mm -hmm into Arab and Jewish states that would remain an economic union. I don't know exactly what they mean by this, but in some way the UN's proposal is to have an Arab state and a Jewish state that are independently governed but share some sort of economic something. I guess if you're going to trade with one, you trade with both kind yeah, of maybe. A thing? Okay. Um, the US and the Soviet Union actually came to a consensus on where the partition should be, which mm-hmm. is kind of astounding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> worldwide support for the Zionist movement swayed the opinions of a few smaller nations. Uh, however, every single Asian Muslim nation voted against this resolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would pass. 
they would allocate roughly 55% of the region of Palestine to the Jewish state, the proposed partition would leave a roughly 1% Jewish minority in the Arab state, but would leave rough of, roughly half of the Jewish state being Arab. Oh, well. So the UN-Palestine Commission is set with selecting the provisional governments for these states, marking the beginning of the end of the British mandate. Mm -hmm. So mandatory Palestine is not over, but this is where we've started making plans for the end of mandatory Palestine. The beginning of the end. Yeah. Yeah. So civil war would break out in Palestine by December 1947, Mm -hmm. literally one month after this resolution is passed by the UN. Yep. Uh, The Haganah would implement what's known as Plan Dalit earlier in this war, and I don't want to dive into the details of it because, again, this is a thing that is two completely different things depending on who you're asking. Whole other podcast by itself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely, according to Jewish sources, I saw Plan Dalit was a defensive plan that maybe involved some preeminent strikes in the name of defense. If you were to ask a Palestinian source, it is essentially a genocidal push. Mm-hmm. I-, I couldn't find any sources that were not like hard one side or the other. So I truly don't know. It's okay. I think especially for this episode, <laughs> you don't have to. But essentially, the reason I bring up Plan Dalit is is not to dive into the controversy, but just to establish, like, the existence of Plan Dalit is not up for debate. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. So I just bring it up to establish that the Haganah is prepared for a conflict with the Arabs. Okay. They have been planning for this eventuality. Whether or not they wanted it to happen, they are ready for it. Okay. The UN, in trying to find these provisional governments can't find any Arabs that want to be a part of their provisional government because accepting that job would mean tacitly endorsing the UN's resolution. Yeah. Which means you will have zero public support as leader of the country. Oh, it's so complicated. (laughs) So the Zionists are winning the war. They have... At this point, their military is so much larger and so much better organized than the Arabic military. It's they're they're cutting through them like a knife through butter, mm-hmm. basically. The the Arabic forces are still searching for strong local leadership. They yeah. they don't have it. They have Amin al Husseini. Huh. So with the UN starting to back off of their promises to make all this work. Zionist forces launch offenses that greatly weaken the Arab forces, and they take the cities of Haifa and Jaffa soon after. Around the same time, the Haganah takes control of the road from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So that's a really important piece of road. That's a big road. thing, yeah. Uh, on May 14th of 1948, Mandatory Palestine would end with the departure of the last British High Commissioner from the region. The state of Israel would be declared and recognized by the UN on the same day. On May 15th, the day after, forces from Syria, Transjordan, Iraq, and Egypt crossed into Palestine to combat Israel. 
they would later be joined by the rest of the Arab League, uh, that being Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and Yemen. It was, uh, they're all in the war from the first day. I think it's just forces from those first four Mm -hmm. countries that invade on day one. Okay. May 15th, 1948 is the beginning of what is known as the Nakba or the Palestinian catastrophe. Uh, We will get into the full effects of the Nakba as we continue through, but May 15th, 1948 is the beginning of disaster here. I have a question about the Arab League. Sure. Um, So if, for example, like one of the Arab League countries goes to war, are the others like obligated to show up and support? Um, I don't know that that's, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but a large part of the motivation for the creation of the Arab League Mm -hmm. was to protect Arabic interests in Palestine, this area that was being completely disregarded. Right, okay. So, like, this kind of is the stated goal of the Arab League at this point. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, So on May 20th, Count Folk Bernadotte of Sweden would be appointed to be the UN mediator in Palestine. And this would actually be the first official mediation in UN history, which is kind of fun. That is kind of fun. Uh, He would propose two not great solutions for peace. (laughs) I was getting excited. I should not. Uh, I'm not even going to go into Bernadotte's proposals because they're not what matter. What matters is that he would be assassinated by Lehi after proposing his second plan. And his, okay, his second plan would have a sovereign Israel and would merge Palestine with Transjordan. So we're back to that old chestnut. Okay, yeah. Uh, Israel would ultimately sign armistices with Egypt, Lebanon, Transjordan, and Syria in 1949, marking the end of the war. Mm. At this point, Israel holds 78% of what had been mandatory Palestine. That's a lot. Uh, The West Bank of the Jordan River, or the West Bank, as we know it so well today, uh, would remain with Transjordan for a while after the war. Okay. And the Gaza Strip would remain with Egypt for several years after the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at the end of this war, this is where you can really see the effects of of the Nakba, which is just this destruction of the Palestinian homeland. Yeah. At the end of the war, they have lost 78% of their territory. 700,000 residents have been forced out of the country and into refugee camps. And, like, Palestinian refugee camps still exist and hold many, many more people today. Like, we're... I think there are people who have lived their whole lives. I was going to say, are there people who just have never been rehomed? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's 1948. Yeah. And oh, that's, like that's hundreds of towns and villages that the uh, Arabs had settled were destroyed, depopulated and renamed oh. by the Zionist forces. These refugees have still not been allowed to return to the country. Mm-hmm. So most of the Arab population at this point has been moved or had been moved away from the coastal regions and into the West Bank. So by 1949, more than half the pa- Palestinian population is living in the West Bank. Okay. Uh, Another significant portion of the population has moved to the Gaza Strip, and there is about an eighth of the population living in Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Israel had guaranteed religious and civil rights to the Arabs that remained in Israel, but Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, 
at this point in time, we are starting to have the word Palestine. It still doesn't exist as a state, but the word is starting to take on that meaning, at least sort of hopefully. Mm-hmm. The, the word Palestine is starting to mean the place that the Palestinians would like to have an independent nation on, yep. which is sort of a new part of the equation. Right. Uh, so the newly renamed Kingdom of Jordan would mm-hmm. offer citizenship to Palestinian Arabs who are living on the West Bank mm-hmm. and a majority of them accepted. Okay. Uh, Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip, however, were denied Egyptian citizenship. Uh, Amin al-Husseini, our old buddy, would declare an all-Palestinian government in the Gaza Strip. Uh, This would be, like, on paper recognized by all the members of the Arab League except for Jordan. Mm -hmm. However, al-Husseini had such little credibility credibility worldwide at this point that the all-Palestinian government really never does anything. It's basically forgotten as soon as it was founded. Okay. In fact, I I did see some court sources claiming that Al-Husseini's involvement in this set back the the cause of Palestinian independence because it lost them so much credibility on the world stage. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but that is something that uh, was talked about in some of the sources I saw. Mm. So in the late 1950s, the Palestinian National Liberation Movement, or Fatah, would be formed. And by the mid-1960s, you really start to see a Palestinian national national identity start to form sort of along with the creation of this Palestine, Palestinian diaspora. Mm-hmm. We've got all these refugee camps all across the Arabic Peninsula. A lot of these people now have moved to Europe and the U.S. and the U.K., and they're starting to come together and create this national identity. Mm-hmm. In 1963, a Palestinian delegation comes to the UN to tell them that the refugees will not give up on reclaiming their homeland. They will stop at nothing. The Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, is formed in 1964. And it really cannot be overstated how fundamental the PLO is to any possibility of a future Palestinian nation. Sorry, say again what it stands for? Palestinian, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Thank you. Uh, So they would be founded at the first Palestine National Council, which was held in Jerusalem. The Palestine National Charter would be adopted, uh, and the council would declare here that they do not recognize the Balfour Declaration, the British Mandate, the Partition, or the establishment of Israel. Okay. Uh, so Fatah, this group that was formed in the 1950s, would unite with a number of other like revolutionary groups under the banner of the PLO in the mid-60s then. Okay. Uh, the groups had their differences, but they basically all agreed on the one thing. We will not settle until we have liberated our entire homeland. Mm-hmm. Like the the thing they all agreed on was we will accept no half measures. Yeah. So the PLO begins carrying out guerrilla attacks on Israel by 1965. They're mainly based at this point out of Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. Mm-hmm. Israel responded quite harshly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in May of 1967, however, 
Egypt, who had been in a position of neutrality through this whole thing, sort of refusing to condemn uh, Israel's attacks on Jordan and Syria and not really defending them either. Yeah. Uh, so in May of 1967, however, that changes and Egypt begins mobilizing troops to Syria. They begin blockading Israeli ships from passing through the Straits of Tehran. Mm-hmm. So on the 5th of June, 1967, Uh, We will start the Six-Day War, also known as the June War. And this is maybe the only war in this entire podcast that we are going to cover every single day of. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, it was... Six days. Only six days. Granted, most of the wars we're going to cover in the next little bit, Mm -hmm. I think the longest one is 50 days. Interesting. I think because World War I and World War II lasted so long, I think there's at least for me, a general assumption that wars have to take years. Yeah. And that's not always true. Yeah. Yeah. So on day one of the six day war, that is the 5th of June, 1967, Mm -hmm. Israel carries out a surprise attack on Egypt's military airfields, destroying the vast majority of the aircraft parked there. Like I think over three quarters was the, the ultimate result. Um, They would carry out similar operations later the same day in Syria and Jordan. So, like, we haven't declared war yet. No, it just Israel has just bombed military airfields in Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Okay. Simultaneously, Israeli forces would invade the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Mm -hmm. This was the first day and essentially the declaration of war. Mm -hmm. On day two... Egyptian forces would be forced to retreat as far as the Suez Canal. So that's essentially giving up the entire Sinai Peninsula. Like, yeah. that's a huge loss of land for Egypt. Yeah. Um, the Israeli forces would also begin capturing East Jerusalem from Jordan. On the 7th of June, East Jerusalem, Nablus, Bethlehem, and Hebron all fall to the Israelis. Okay. Thousands of PLO fighters are captured in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. On the next day, Israeli planes would actually attack and sink an American spy ship north of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, Both governments would later conclude the attack was accidental, with the Israeli government claiming they believed it was an Egyptian ship. Okay. 34 crew members were killed and 171 were injured. Uh, Now, I'm not making any statement about this because I I truly couldn't for the life of me figure out why Israel would want to have attacked this ship. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who claim that it was an intentional attack. I've sort of figured. Um, Like I said, I can't figure out why that would even be. So I'm not saying one way or the other. But uh, it is a, a common theory. Even even one that I saw is held by survivors of the attack. Yeah. Okay. Okay. On the 9th of June, Israeli forces reached the east bank of the Suez. Uh, Israel at this point will sign a ceasefire with the Arab states in the war. However, they continue their ground assault towards the Golan Heights region of Syria. Uh, On the 10th of June, they complete their assault on Golan Heights despite the ceasefire. Uh, And then kind of the war's over. 
Okay. Israel just kind of went, hold on a sec, I'm not done yet. <laughs> and everyone just sort of let them. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess, what like, are you gonna, yeah. this is such a lopsided military victory for Israel. They, mm. I don't have the casualty numbers here, but they are ridiculously lopsided. Like, Israel's military is so much better organized, so much better equipped. It is a complete domination that happens here. So at the end of this war, roughly 400,000 Palestinians have been evicted from the West Bank. Okay. Uh, many of those had only settled on the West Bank after losing their previous homes in the partition. Right. Uh. Arabs who had left the country during the war were denied reentry. Also, nearly 100,000 Palestinians are evicted from the Gaza Strip. A year after this war, Yasser Arafat would be appointed as the official spokesperson of Fatah, which is, at this point, the largest component of the PLO. Like, the PLO has a number of organizations under its banner. Fatah is the biggest one. Okay. Um, so the PLO would carry out guerrilla attacks from Jordan in 1970. Uh the Israeli retaliation combined with tensions between the Palestinians and the Jordanian government would cause Jordan to impose martial law and begin carrying out attacks on PLO buildings in September of 1970. Syria would end up invading Jordan in support of the PLO. Uh, this conflict would last for 10 days and ultimately about five to th five to 10,000 Palestinians would be killed. Uh, this would become known as Black September, and the Black September terrorist organization would largely be formed as a response to this event. Okay. So in 1971, Black S September would, the, the group now, not the event. I understood, yes. Uh, will assassinate Jordanian Prime Minister Wasfi al Tal. Uh, in 1972, Black September carries out a very well-publicized attack at the Munich Olympics, where they take oh. nine Israeli athletes yeah. hostages, killing two in the process. All nine of the athletes and five of the eight uh, kidnappers would later be killed in a shootout with the West German police. Mm. Uh, other members of the Black September group would hijack a West German plane and use that to negotiate the release of the three surviving kidnappers mm. from the, the Munich massacre, okay. as it was known. Okay. Uh, in 1973, the October War, also known as the Yom Kippur War, began. Okay, sorry, I just had kind of a funny, not funny thought. It's like a war for every month. September, I, October. The, <laughs> I believe war. we will also get, I don't know if it's going to come up here, but I believe we will get the July war in Lebanon as well. Well, there you go. And I think it's partly because these wars are so short. Yeah, you can have one a month. And yeah. It's <laughs> uh, in 1973, so the October war or the Yom Kippur war mm -hmm. began, begins. Egypt and Syria again led a League of Arab Nations against Israel. The initial assaults were carried out on the areas that Israel had occupied since the Six-Day War. So the east bank of the Suez Canal in particular and the Golan Heights region of Syria. Uh, Egyptian forces quickly broke through the fortified lines on the other side of the Suez Canal. Um, but Israel managed to push back the Syrian invasion of Golan Heights by the third day. 
by the fifth day, the Syrian invasion had been fully routed and Israel was working on reclaiming lost land in Syria. Wow. Uh, they ultimately would not be able to take Damascus as they planned. Uh, Egypt would entrench their forces east of the Suez Canal in this land they have regained from the Israelis. But ultimately, the Israelis would find a gap between the first and second Egyptian armies that would allow them to slip through and march on Suez City, engaging the third Egyptian army. Okay. Um, after a first had fallen through, an official ceasefire that would hold was signed on October 25th of 1973 between Egypt and Syria, or between Egypt and uh, Israel. Mm. Uh, throughout the... Also, like, this whole conflict, just for context, is a huge powder keg worldwide because at this point the Soviet Union has thrown their support behind the Arabs mm -hmm. and the U.S. has thrown their support behind Israel. Right. So it's like big world powers. This this is all involved. Cold War shit at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It is. What year is it again? 1973. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. So throughout the 1970s, the PLO would make strides towards international recognition. Mm -hmm. Yasser Arafat would become Palestine's first delegate to the UN, where he would declare the PLO's goal as one democratic state where Christians, Jews, and Muslims live in justice, equality, and fraternity. Mm -hmm. Notably, the U.S. would not acknowledge the PLO as long as they denied Israel's right to exist. Okay. The Lebanese Civil War would break out in 1975, and would last essentially until 1990. We're not going to get too deep into the Lebanese Civil War because it is an incredibly multifaceted conflict. There are like four sides to this war, and Palestine is not really a primary participant. The reason I'm bringing up this war is because... The, at this point, the PLO is mainly based out of Lebanon. Okay. They've been chased out of Jordan. They they had that whole conflict with the Jordanian government. So Lebanon is basically the PLO's main headquarters. And previous to the Nakba, Lebanon had been a country that, for the region at least, was very evenly divided between a large number of religious sects. Mm. They had their Arab region and their Jewish region and their Christian region. They all got along pretty good. Mm. However... With the Nakba happening, all of a sudden there's a massive influx of Palestinian Muslims into the nation. Yeah. So now the Muslims are the majority in Lebanon and they have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of the cause for the war. We're going to get into that in Lebanon. I was going to say, we, we'll, we don't have time right we'll now. We'll cover Lebanon another day. <laughs> so Talk about it then. In September of 1978, Egyptian Prime Minister Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin would lead, uh, would hold the Camp David Accords. Uh, these were mediated by U.S. President Jimmy Carter and negotiated at the president's Camp David retreat. Uh, Sadat and Begin would share the 1978 Nobel Peace Prize as a result of having signed this agreement together. Okay. The Sinai Peninsula would be returned to Egypt in 1982. Okay. Uh, so the Camp David Accords provided for a five-year transitional period after which the West Bank and the Gaza Strip would become autonomous. 
the Camp David Accords were also the first official peace treaty between Israel and any of the Arab League nations. So it had a massive effect on the Arab League because Egypt signing this peace treaty with Israel is also tacitly acknowledging Israel's right to exist. Yeah. So along with having this huge effect on the Arab League, it's also going to have a really significant effect on Anwar Sadat, as he would ultimately be assassinated as a result of signing this agreement. Uh, Hosni Mubarak would be injured in this attack, and that's Sadat's vice president. Uh, Mubarak would become, I guess it's prime minister, not president, uh, would become prime minister after Sadat's death, and he would hold that position until 2011. Uh, Mubarak's ousting from Egypt was a very highly publicized thing at the time. that's the Arab's bring yeah yeah i remember that so uh we will talk a lot more about him in our egypt episode i'm sure i was wondering how this was going to tie in with that whole thing in egypt actually and i'm yeah it would be interesting to see it kind of all sort of fold together in uh in late 1982 israel would invade beirut and that's the capital city of lebanon thank you uh with the goal of expelling the plo from the region Uh, They didn't manage to remove 100% of the PLO militias from Lebanon, but this would be the end of Lebanon being the PLO's, like, main base. Uh, By 1983, Arafat would be settled, or forced out of Lebanon, and would settle in Tunisia. Mm. Uh, So throughout the late 80s, guerrilla violence was again mounting in the region, uh, with Israeli control over the Gaza Strip and the West Bank increasing through this period. Uh, Around this time, a pro-Palestinian satirist and cartoonist, Naj al-Ali, is assassinated in London. And al-Ali is a really interesting figure. He created this sort of, just this young boy turned away from the camera with his hands crossed behind his back, which has become this symbol for the Palestinian national identity. Like, he is a, a big a big icon for this burgeoning nation. So his assassination is a big deal. Yeah. These tensions come to a head in December of 1987 with the start of the first intifada. So that is Arabic for shaking off. Okay. Uh, the intifada involves general strikes, boycotts, stone throwing demonstrations. Like this is it's the idea is not to have a full-on violent revolt. Yasser Arafat has recently made a public declaration where he condemns terrorism in all its forms and is very conscious during this period that he does not want Palestine to be seen as the aggressors. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's during the first intifada. I couldn't find an exact date or inciting incident but it's during the first intifada that arafat would begin endorsing a two-state solution okay uh it's also during the first intifada that the islamic resistance movement known better today as hamas would be formed and begin vying for power over the region with the plo Mm. uh hamas refused flat out to deal with israel yeah uh Arafat wanted to cement himself at this point as the worldwide leader of the Palestinian people. So he would call a Palestine National Council in Algiers in November 1988. This National Council would 
issue the Palestinian Declaration of Independence as well as the first national charter of Palestine. Uh, he speaks again to the UN in December of 88, hoping to establish an international peace conference in the Middle East and officially recognize the, uh, and officially be recognized as like the leader of the state mm. of Palestine. Okay. Um, and to officially recognize the state of Israel as Palestinian leader. Yeah. So it's after this speech that Reagan would declare that conditions have been met for the opening of a U.S. dialogue with the PLO. And U.S. representatives would meet with the PLO in Tunisia within days. Mm -hmm. uh, the Israeli government at this point has still refused to meet with the PLO. Okay. At one point, a representative of Israel is speaking to the U.S. House of Representatives, and there was a quote that I think is really representative of the whole situation and at least how it was being viewed in the U.S. at this time. Mm -hmm. Secretary State of James Baker would say to this Israeli delegate, basically give him the White House phone number and say, when you're ready to talk serious about peace, call us. That's the U.S. Secretary of State said that. So the, the Soviet Union would ultimately dissolve in 1991, and that would lose Palestine one of their most steadfast supporters on the global stage. Yeah. The PLO would also refuse to condemn or, or endorse the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Mm -hmm. So that is what will become known as the Gulf War. Yes, Part of the Gulf War. Yeah. So do you, sorry, know yeah. off the top of your head what year the Berlin Wall? What, when I do not. Happen? Okay. Sorry. That, that's okay. It's off topic, kind of. Uh, so the fact that they wouldn't condemn the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, mm -hmm. uh, coupled with the fact that Saddam Hussein was reasonably popular among the Palestinian population, mm -hmm. really meant that there weren't a ton of friends left for Palestine yeah. at this point. Uh, and really because Hussein was popular among Palestinian people, their inaction on the invasion of Kuwait was largely viewed globally as endorsement. Yes. Uh, there are about 400,000 Palestinians living in Kuwait at this point, And they would again be forced to pick up and go because oh. The Kuwaiti government is no longer friendly to Palestinians in this region. Throughout late 1991 and 92, Israel and Palestine would meet virtually every month okay. for a new round of peace negotiations. Yeah. Uh, a secret diplomatic channel would be opened up through Norway, and it had the following ground rules laid out. One, all talks would be in secret. Mm -hmm. Two, exchanges are non-committal. So, like, we're just talking. Okay. And three, and I think the most important rule of this secret back channel, no historical grievances could be raised. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get anything done, right? Exactly. Going forward when all you're talking about is what happened before. So it's, oh. it's through this secret channel in 93 that the PLO and Israel would come to an agreement on mutual recognition. On the 9th of September, Arafat would send a letter to the Israeli Prime Minister Rabin recognizing, and this is a quote, the right of the state of Israel to exist in peace and security. And he also declares that any Palestinian articles, laws that deny the existence of Israel are no longer valid. Okay. 
the next day, Rabin would basically respond in kind, uh, saying, and again, a quote, uh, the government of Israel has decided to recognize the PLO as the representative of the Palestinian people and commence negotiations with the PLO within the Middle East peace process. So this would cultivate, culminate in the signing of the, the first Oslo Accord on September 13th, 93. Okay. This document outlined future Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip and Jericho, as well as the establishment of a Palestinian government. Mm-hmm. This transition was scheduled to take five years. It also outlined a timeline for tackling some of the other issues that would have to be figured out along the way, such as, for example, isolated Israeli settlements in land that would be part of an Arab state and, of course, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is happy with the outcome of the Oslo Accords, and there is a continuation on just sectarian violence within the whole region through 1994, including several attacks on Israelis by Hamas. And it's during this period in the mid-90s that mainstream support would start to grow within Israel for the separation wall. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second Oslo Accord would be signed in 1995, and that would outline election methods as well as the exact divvying up of the West Bank between Palestinian, Israeli, and shared jurisdiction. Okay. Uh, In November 1995, the Israeli Prime Minister Rabin is assassinated by a Jewish extremist. Mm. His successor establishes his intentions to continue Rabin's plans. However, there would be... Uh, another election in 1996 where uh, the Labour Party, which had been Rabin's party, would ultimately lose to the Likud Party, led by a guy named Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, the Likud Party is a much more right-wing party, and they were not happy with the decisions that Rabin had made. So they would start basically ignoring diplomatic deadlines laid out in the Second Oslo Accord particularly a deadline in uh before i get there also uh yasser arafat is elected the first president of palestine in a landslide victory like 90 percent of the vote wow and it's quite rare i honestly believe that's a, a legitimate number like no one else has been representing palestine's interests the way he has, yeah. except fucking Amin <laughs> al-Husseini, who, do, what do we need to say about that? Uh, so the a, a particular deadline that caused problems, there were a number of deadlines written into the second Oslo Accord, basically saying this is when Israel will move their troops out of this section, and this is when they'll move them out of this section. He started missing these military deadlines. Okay. And that is not popular in Palestine, obviously. Netanyahu, however, would be defeated in the 1999 election by a guy named Ehud Barak, Barak, probably. Uh, And his slogan is, we are here, they are there. Like, he campaigns on a promise of a border wall with Palestine. Cameras, trenches, sensors, what have you. Like, that's, that's his selling point. Okay. The... Discussion of the final status of these two nations would resume in late 99 and would continue in 2000 
uh, with Bill Clinton bringing the two groups together to try and get them to talk. But ultimately, these talks would fall apart by the by late 2000. Mm -hmm. And that would mark the beginning of this second intifada. Mm -hmm. Um, By 2002, Israel would have reoccupied the vast majority of the West Bank. In 2003, Palestine would create the position of prime minister. Basically, at this point, a lot of other countries are starting to get fucking sick of Arafat. Mm -hmm. And they know how popular he is in Palestine. So they, as far as I can tell, a bunch of countries basically go to Palestine and say, you have two choices. You can either... Get rid of Arafat, but since we know you don't want to do that, you can also create a position of prime minister. Mm -hmm. So, like, we can actually fucking work with someone. (laughs) (laughs) So, into this new position of prime minister, uh, Arafat would appoint the more moderate Mahmoud Abbas. So, in Abbas's inaugural speech, he states that the solution to their issues with Israel will not be a military solution. Mm. That's the thing he's really stressing. And he demands a Palestinian state as outlined in that 1967 (laughs) agreement way the hell back. Yeah. Uh, Abbas would encourage the end of the intifada, but essentially Arafat just kept being like, no, keep going. So he quit. No, (laughs) Okay. Uh, Arafat would get very sick in October of 2004 and would ultimately pass away by November. Uh, It seems most likely to me that he had a stroke. Uh, It is very popularly believed that he was poisoned. There are many different theories of how that happened, what he was poisoned with, who poisoned him. There's also, I think, a reasonably fringe theory that he died of AIDS. Okay. Um, I'm going to say this is not a true crime one. So I'm just <laughs> getting it all out there. Uh, in after Arafat pos- passed away, mm-hmm. Abbas would be elected the next president of Palestine. Okay. Is there still a prime minister? Oh, no. I, that's, no, n- I don't all. think so. They just dropped that. <laughs> if there okay. is, it doesn't matter that much. Okay. Um, so Abbas would be elected president of prime minister. He would also be named chairman of the PLO. Mm. So he's basically the new Arafat. Yeah. Um, Hamas though would, okay. Uh, sorry. Abbas would hold a summit with Israel in February of 2005, which would mark the end of the second intifada. Okay. However, Hamas would win the election in 2006. Uh, Hamas, as we will remember is much less willing to deal with the Israeli government. Mm -hmm. They are the more extreme of the two parties. And both of them agree that Palestine should exist, which is, a fairly new thing at this point. Yeah. Um, they would briefly form a coalition government, Hamas and Fatah, but it wouldn't last and really would devolve into violence. Uh, Hamas would defeat the Fatah forces in the Gaza Strip by June of 2007, and Abbas would then denounce the Hamas government. Uh, in 2007, leading to a sort of split government governance situation in Palestine. So we've got Hamas is in charge in the Gaza Strip and we've got Fatah is in charge on the West Bank. And it's still that way. Okay. 
it's gone through a couple changes that, but like that's still how it is. Okay. Um, Abbas would declare a state of emergency after the loss of the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. Um, His government is now basically presiding over the areas in the West Bank that Palestine holds, which is not that much. Israel still holds a lot of the West Bank. Yeah. It's it's really tough. Uh, The emergency cabinet that he formed in the West Bank, though, would receive very widespread international support like. As far as the world is concerned, it seems Fatah are the good guys, Hamas are the bad guys. Okay, that was kind of the the sense I was getting. Yeah, so Israel would ultimately declare Gaza in its state being held by Hamas as a hostile entity and would place troops along the border. Okay. There would be a ceasefire by the end of June, but ultimately that ceasefire would lead directly into the 2009 war on Gaza. And Israel's plan in this war had three phases. So step one, they had assembled a list of targets over the past six months that were to be targeted for airstrikes. Step two is a ground assault in which they would take over areas from which rockets and artillery had been fired into Israel. Mm. Step three is a further deeper ground assault to deal. I believe this is a quote, a knockout blow to Hamas. Okay. This war lasts for about three weeks and the entire thing takes place during the transition from Bush to Obama. Oh, so Bush supports Israel in this conflict. Mm -hmm. Obama is not the president yet, but he doesn't comment. Okay. Uh, Israel would withdraw from Gaza in late January 2009 with very little difference having been made in the political situation. Mm -hmm. However, two billion dollars of property damage were done and over a thousand Palestinian over a hundred thousand Palestinians would have their homes destroyed. Mm hmm. Netanyahu would be elected again as prime minister of Israel at this point in 2009, a position that he would hold until the beginning of 2021. Uh, He is still the leader of the opposition. Okay. Uh, Palestine would request full admission to the UN in late 2011. Mm. However, facing massive opposition from the US, they're unable to acquire a full majority vote, and that would be sort of the end of their application process to be a member state in the UN. Okay. I believe this is our first country that is not a member state in the UN. Okay. Uh, in 2012, they would achieve non-member observer status in the UN. So they audit the UN essentially. Basically. Okay. And this would be, this would be passed by a huge majority mm-hmm. of the UN. However, the U S and Canada did vote against Palestine mm-hmm. being admitted as a non as a non-member observer state. Okay. Uh, there was another assault against Hamas in the Gaza Strip that was launched in 2014. This would last for 50 days of sort of intermittent fighting and ceasefires. During these 50 days, about 13% of the homes in the Gaza Strip would be destroyed, leaving another tens of thousands of Palestinians without a place to live. In late 2016, we get a promise from the new president, Trump, who I swear to God, this is a quote. He promises the ultimate deal for humanity's sake. 
end quote, between Israel and Palestine. Okay. Uh, There is a lot of early optimism for this promise in Palestine. However, it's quickly dashed when he moves the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I remember when this happened in the news. Yep. And I barely understood what was going on, but it was bad. I didn't understand why it was such a big deal until I did all this research. And now, like, what the fuck was he thinking? I don't know. The orange man cannot do anything. (laughs) We know this. (laughs) In 2017, Fatah and Hamas would come to an agreement that was made in Cairo that would end the split administration in Palestine. It, this agreement, just so you know, for context of how long this whole thing has taken, Mm -hmm. this agreement happens roughly three weeks before the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. Oh, Okay. So this agreement to to end the split governance mm-hmm. would ultimately only last a couple months. Yeah. Uh, from what I saw, it I didn't get too deep into why this ended because we're really verging now on current events and not yes. history. Yes. <laughs> uh, from what I saw, and this was a very shallow glance, uh, when they came together, Fatah tried to basically put all of the Fatah representatives back in place in the Gaza Strip, Mm -hmm. which would then leave all of the Hamas representatives without a job. Right. So just a lot of short-sighted, not making Mm -hmm. concessions. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's basically brings us to the modern day. The one thing I will say is that while there is now in some form, a state of Palestine, there are still more than 5 million Palestinian refugees living in camps across the world. Jesus. Um, okay, this is a very complicated thing to be like reflecting or weighing in on. For one thing, kudos to you for organizing all of this in a way that a person can understand it. I hope it has made some sort of sense. I skipped so much. I do. It's okay. You had no choice. <laughs> You had no choice. Like, this is by far the longest history section I've done, and it is also the one where I have skipped by far the most things that probably deserve a mention in this episode. That's all right. We will leave that to our listeners. If you're still curious, you can read some books and some articles and do some stuff. The thing that I find the hardest is that whichever side of this conflict you are on, there are so many just people, just civilians, who have had their lives just kind of ruined and, and been I, displaced and, like, I, that I couldn't sucks. include all the events of civilian casualties. No. There are so... This is such an unbelievable disaster of global relations. And this is like civilian casualties on a scale that we have not addressed yet here. And we've addressed some like shitty stuff that happened. I I really think that, I mean, I've said this about every country (laughs) we've researched, but we should have known more of this already. Yes. Just having gone to public school. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying like, I'm not saying me and you need to watch the news more. Maybe we do, but we should have learned some of this. We should have. And we didn't. No, we, and if we did, it was not addressed in a way that was like at all comprehensive 
that you can actually take something away yeah. from it. It's just like, oh, there's conflict. And that's kind of like, all right, what kind of what sort? I think sometimes, I don't know, especially with like kids in school, but the, there's, you don't know anything. You yeah. come in completely blank slate, junior kindergarten, here we go. And then whatever they kind of put into you is what you come out with. We're in a similar situation because we both went to public school basically in Ontario. Yeah. So we have a similar context. I'm sure it gets taught differently in different places in the world, but ugh. You want to talk about some fun facts? <laughs> Do I ever? <laughs> Are they fun? I've got a few fun ones here. Okay, because I would love to not talk about civilian casualties anymore. Well, let's talk about famous people from Palestine. Great, let's do that. That sounds awesome. So I've got first a list of just famous people from antiquity who were almost certainly from the Palestine region. I'm just going to rapid fire them off because it's a bunch of heavy hitters. (laughs) Okay. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, St. Peter, all of the Herods, and Judas. That's an impressive list. That's an impressive fucking list. I don't think any of the countries we've had can match Jesus as an alumni. (laughs) I don't think so either. Also, I know there's a lot of people in the world named Mary and Joseph, but these are the two, right? These are the ones. The main ones. (laughs) I read something once in the news that there was like a woman named Mary and I think her husband's name was Joseph and they had a baby on Christmas. Oh yeah, that's fun. And it just, it made the news as just like a weird human interest. Yeah. Like, Who'd have thunk? It's not impossible, but, you know, rare enough. Uh, so another famous person out of Palestine mm-hmm. uh, is Ibrahim Tukan, and he is a Palestinian poet. Mm-hmm. His work, Matini, would ha- was the first Palestinian anthem that would later be replaced by the one we're going to talk about. Okay. However, Matini is still the anthem of Iraq. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So Palestine's huh. old al album old anthem <laughs> is iraq's current anthem interesting that's gonna i don't be cool. know that there was any overlap where it was both anthems i don't think right. so actually we'll get to it when we talk about iraq i guess yeah um another famous person out of palestine uh we're now gonna get into two palestinian americans and one palestinian Cana- two palestinian canadians mm-hmm. uh so we'll start with the americans we've got uh I, I don't know how modeling works as an industry, but mm. I've seen the names of these two models. Okay. And that makes me think they're immensely famous. Yeah, I don't know a lot of models, just to tell you. Um, and that would be Gigi and Bella Hadid. I don't, uh, I don't know them. They are American of Palestinian descent. Their okay. father, Mohammed, is a California real estate developer who fled Palestine during the Nakba in 1948. Mm. Okay. Um. Like I said, I won't pretend to understand what models do on the day-to-day or how you even begin to get famous doing that work. Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I've seen their names around. Uh, Bella did date Toronto musician The Weeknd on and off for a number oh, really? of years. I think the That's other... Fun. I think Gigi dates one of the One Direction guys or something. Like, they're, they're cool. high-profile people. Yes. Uh, another Palestinian-American motherfucking DJ Khaled. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Okay. We the best music guy. <laughs> He's of Palestinian descent. All right. Um, one that really shocked me mm-hmm. is uh, there's a band that uh, the band actually started in Toronto and found their first success here. They would have a colossal number one hit 
This band is magic. You remember <gasps> why you gotta be so rude? Yeah, that's that their was a lead huge singer song. is a Palestinian Canadian guy by the name of Nazri Tony Atway. Wow, that song was everywhere. You couldn't get away from yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That song, Rude, would end up selling over 8 million units. It was the ninth highest selling song of 2014, and it would stay at number one in the U.S. for six weeks before finally being knocked off by another intolerable earworm, (laughs) Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Our final Palestinian Canadian we're going to talk about is a little bit more serious of a situation. Okay. This is a guy named Izeldin Abuleish, and he was the first Palestinian doctor to work in an Israeli hospital, mm. which is kind of cool, but yeah. that is nowhere near his claim to fame. Okay. He was covering the 2009 Gaza war for an Israeli television station, mm-hmm. and Literally, while he was live on the air for this Israeli station, mind you, Mm -hmm. he found out that Israeli forces had bombed his home, killing his three daughters and his niece. Oh. Live on air, he found this out. That's brutal. And ultimately, it strengthened his resolve to promote peace between Palestine and Israel, a cause that he would end up starting the Daughters for Life organization for. Uh he would later become a professor of global health at the university of Toronto and Mm. gain full Canadian citizenship in 2015. He has been nominated motherfucking five times for the Nobel peace prize. Wow. Five times. That's a lot. He's been quoted as saying, if I could know that my daughters were the last sacrifice on the road to peace between the Palestinians and Israelis, then I would accept their loss. Wow. So, just an what unbelievable man that yeah. I, I want to boost his signal a little bit and the Daughters for Life organization because what what a story. Yeah. Jeez. So Palestinian cuisine mm. is sort of a tough thing to pin down, mainly by virtue of the fact that Palestine didn't really exist until like 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, mainly... It is influenced by Lebanese, Syrian, and Jordanian cuisine as their three closest neighbors. However, it's also heavily influenced by Turkish cuisine as a result of many, many years of Ottoman occupation. Yeah, that makes sense. So today we have gone to uh, just like a Middle Eastern place up the street and got ourselves some fancy hummus. Yeah, what's it called again? Parallel? Parallel Sesame Bros. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, so we got ourselves some some nice hummus by someone who can make it a lot more legit than we might have been able to. I tried once and it was like fine, but eh. I'll try to find a, a nice looking recipe for hummus and post it anyways. But uh, just know that that's not what we are making. <laughs> um, a, f- a sort of non sequitur fun fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, The majority of fruit-bearing trees in Palestine are olive trees, and it is home to potentially, Mm -hmm. this is not verified, and there are other things that will get claimed, will try to claim this same title. Mm -hmm. It is potentially the oldest olive tree on earth. The Al-Badawi tree in Bethlehem is estimated at somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 years old. That's amazing. Yeah, like a living tree. That's incredible. And then I just want to talk really briefly about an important 
Palestinian national symbol, and that is the key of Palestine. Okay. So in the Nakba in 1948, many of these Palestinians who were forced out of their homes took their keys with them. Okay. And since then, the key has become this really important motif for Palestinian art and particularly for symbolizing the right to return for Palestinian refugees, which has still not been granted. Interesting. That's a cool symbol. I feel like most countries you see pick like animals and flowers and stuff. Yeah. The key. That's neat. I like that. So that gets us through my entire history and fun fact section. You deserve a high five. And uh, we are now going to take a break. And we are going to listen to Palestine's anthem. And eat the hummus. Yeah. Yay. So this anthem is called Fida'i. So that was Fidai, and that is the national anthem of Palestine. So I've got a little bit of history to cover for us here. Mm-hmm. Don't worry too much. It is a very <laughs> short bit of history we have for this is anthem. Is it like the, the 20 pages that you wrote up for the... It was 15 <laughs> pages of notes between the two episodes. I was watching you scrolling as you were talking, and I was like, oh. Because from this, like, I can't really read it from this angle. It'll look yeah. the same. It's like, oh. <laughs> It never ends. All right, go ahead. So Fidayu was chosen in 1996 to be the anthem of Palestine. It was chosen by the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was done. So if you'll recall, uh, when the the PLO was sort of early on in their existence, uh, they held a Palestinian National Council where they established like the Declaration of Independence and the National Charter. Mm-hmm. So Article 31 of the National Charter stated, and this is a quote, the organization shall have a flag, an oath of allegiance, and an anthem. All this shall be decided upon in accordance with a special regulation. So Fidayi was essentially chosen to satisfy Article 31. Mm -hmm. They had said, we're going to have an anthem for our country, and And then they did. Let's do it. Uh, So... The title, Fidai, yeah. translates directly to warrior or mm. Fedayin warrior is, I believe, how you would pronounce it. And th- the word Fedayin goes back a long time uh, and has meaned, meaned, meant a number of different things in that time. But mm. essentially, in the context of Palestine, mm-hmm. it means like a freedom fighter, someone okay. fighting to liberate the homeland. Okay. Uh, However, the more 
strict translation of of fidai would mean somebody who's willing to lay down their life okay for their values or their country or their family I, I think martyr would almost be a more accurate translation than warrior okay. from what I was seeing. I appreciate the clarification as it does come up many times in the lyrics. Absolutely. And, and the lyrics know. do translate it as warrior. But yeah. from what I could see, like it's it's not a perfect translation of yeah. the sentiment. Translations are always going to be a little, you know. So uh, these lyrics were written by a guy named Saeed Al-Muyazin. Uh, and from what I could see, he's also known as Fatah Al-Farah or Rebel Boy or Boy of the Revolution okay. is what that translates to. I literally could not find a single explanation for why he is named that. But every source I found talking about the anthem acknowledged that he was named that. I mean, it's kind of cool anyways. So, so yeah, he's the rebel boy. <laughs> the guy who wrote the lyrics. Uh, he was, Muyazin was for a time the PLO's representative in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So he was a Palestinian poet, but he also like worked with the PLO. Right. Um, he had written the lyrics as a poem, like an elegy to the fallen mm -hmm. freedom fighters, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Muyazin would pass away, Muzayin, sorry, not Muyazin, uh, would pass away in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in 1991. Uh, the music was written by a guy named Ali Ismail, and he was a Egyptian composer who was mainly known outside of Egypt and the surrounding region for his film scores. Oh, interesting. Uh, however, he was a favorite composer of President Nasser of Egypt, who was a major leader of like the pan Arabic movement back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was also known within Egypt for writing a number of Egyptian patriotic songs. Okay. And as far as I can tell, he just like liked the poem cool, and wrote his own arrangement for it. Mm. Neither Ali Ismail or Said Al-Muzayin were alive to see this performed as mm. the national anthem. Okay. What year did you say it was? 90. 96. 96. So it's quite late. Yeah. Relatively Musa speaking. Yin passed away in 1991 and, uh, Ismail passed away all the way back in 74. Oh, it's too bad. They didn't get to see it, but compared to other anthems that we've looked at that happen, at least, especially in the African countries we've looked at that take place or that appear more in like the sixties and yeah. 50s. And I, I don't know Martini, that song we talked about previously. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it was ever an official Palestinian yeah, anthem. Just a casual one. Um, but, it is ostensibly what was replaced by Fidayi in in 1996, okay. and uh, I think is still very popularly performed throughout Palestine as just a, a song of national pride. Yeah, nice. So that's everything I have. Cool. I swear to God, I, I'm not gonna lay any more <laughs> on you. I have something I thought was interesting when you said that the composer did a lot of film scores. Sure. Because when we were listening to the instrumental version, I it felt to me like the kind of thing that plays in like the overture of like an old musical movie. Yeah, totally. Um, it's got some of that almost like Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah, vibe to it. I was thinking about like My Fair Lady and you know the opening yeah. where they do that big like little like teaser trailer of all the songs you're going to hear in yeah, the show. Totally. And then they do it again at the intermission. Yeah, just like um, old school musical overtures. Yeah, That's what felt, they all were. It felt like that to me. Cool. Um, okay. And I, I am kind of pleased with myself for having come up with that <laughs> independently of knowing that this guy wrote film scores. So that's kind of fun. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into the ratings? Yeah, let's do it. 
So let's talk about the lyrics, which I actually think are really strong. Yes, I was reading the lyrics as we were listening. Not that I can follow along that well because I don't speak Arabic. But yeah, um, I think the lyrics are like a real win. A for this. Re- they're so um, fucking epic. They're like epic. Let me just read for the listeners an excerpt of the first. I'm just going to read the whole first first because it's incredible. It's very good. Do that. With my determination, my fire, and the volcano of my vendetta, with the longing in my blood for my land and my home, I have climbed the mountains and fought the wars. I have conquered the impossible and crossed the frontiers. It's excellent. This is incredible. I think once or twice we've made comparisons to like Shakespearean monologues, but I don't think it's ever felt as apt as it does now. Especially with the imagery of like the fire and the blood and the mountains. And I really liked this part in the second verse where it says... It's in practice brackets. I'm not exactly sure why, but it says Palestine is my home. Palestine is my fire. That's yes. oh, and I, I, I'm also confused about the brackets there because I don't know if it's sung in the background or yeah, something, maybe it's but an echo trying or to follow along with the, the Arabic lyrics just phonetically. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear those lines. Okay. So maybe it's like an alternate reading or maybe something. Maybe it is. That's a possibility actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, it's so powerful these it's there's so much conviction there is to these lyrics i'm finding doing this podcast is really making me address my relationship with my national identity yeah which is a curious experience because mostly i just take it for granted that i'm canadian and i don't really think about it that much yeah i mean there's been a lot of conscious efforts by the canadian government to (laughs) to like establish a national identity of canada which i i don't think works you can't force it yeah it has to just happen like we don't get the nation of palestine because the ahc started pushing for it we get Mm -hmm. the nation of palestine because these far-flung members of the palestinian diaspora start to come together and create this for themselves yeah it happens from the bottom up yeah that's true and i think too as a canadian like a lot of the things that we consider to be sort of like the big standing like symbols and sort of anchoring points things like i'm thinking about how we were talking about the mounties earlier mm-hmm. those are unstable like absolutely like the the mounties are iconically a canadian symbol but at the same time like they're not doing well in the no, PR sphere. They're doing real bad. So Most a lot Canadians of the things, do not want to be represented no, by the Mounties these days. No, so I think a lot of the things that we kind of considered to be like the the big sort of national things we were standing by are kind of shifting under our feet. And it's like, oh, 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 okay. I don't want that anymore. But I, I find it really interesting how throughout the whole modern history of Palestine, like all this stuff we covered in the last 100 years, it's such a clear through line of we just want to live in our homes. And also, too, I think this anthem addresses nicely, like the fact that people have been scattered like hither and yon. Absolutely. And have to still kind of unite under this song and this thing. I don't know. I thought the lyrics were great. I'm going to give the lyrics. I'm going hard 10. I'm going 10 also. I think there's I take no issue with any of these it's a bit long maybe but it, i it's it good. feels long when you're listening to it but when i look at those lyrics like yeah the only fat i'd cut is like the the chorus that plays before the first verse yeah that's fair i would and also cut that that is really me coming to it as like 
someone who writes <laughs> songs that are like Western folk. Yeah. So I can see how my perspective might not be that useful. I can also see how you would want to start this with the word warrior. Absolutely. That's, that's a, a very good point. It's a good word. If I was arranging this, I'd be like, well, it's epic if you start it that way. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and the music, it's not blowing my head off but i like it a lot yeah it's it's not as maybe like catchy as some of the other ones we've listened to but it doesn't have to be it kind of i think matches the scale of the lyrics yeah in its kind of sweeping dramatic and it's kind of way almost like there's a lot of sort of military spirit to those drums which i think really captures the spirit of those lyrics yes i agree i agree i think i'm gonna go as far as an eight on the music here Yes, I'm going to go, I think, seven. Background story is unfortunately, I think, the weakest part of this anthem. Yeah, it's it's not as good as some of the other ones we've seen. I think it's interesting that because they're one of the last formed nations we've seen, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that when they wrote their national charter, it included, like, We've got to have a national anthem if anyone's going to take us seriously. I can see how you would feel maybe a little bit like left behind. Like you'd see other countries like yeah. going to the Olympics and playing their anthems and you'd be like, we don't have one of those. Maybe we should. Um, I think it's cool. I think it's very decisive of them. I, I think it's really interesting that just because of their very specific place mm-hmm. within history, they they had that opportunity to yeah. go, hey, that's a thing we're going to need. Yeah. Whereas I think it happened a little more organically with a lot of these countries, Yeah, which sounds like a knock on Palestine, but I, I don't think it is. And no, I, I don't mean I, it as one. No, I think you come to it when you come to it. Plus for a lot of places too, it's tied to independence, which happened in such a complicated way for Palestine. <laughs> it still hasn't It still really kind of happened, hasn't happened, depending on so how you want to look at it's it. It's not as clear cut as like we booted the British and then we wrote an anthem for yeah. ourselves. It's like, did they go? I don't know. What happened? Where are we? Let's write an anthem. I think I'm coming down. Honestly, I think I would be coming down on just an even five if I didn't love the dude's nickname so much. (laughs) Rebel Boy is going to bump it up to a 5.5 single-handedly for me. That's fair. It's a good name. Um, I was feeling about a five as well. All right. Significance to the country, I think, cannot be overstated. Clearly, it is extremely significant. Yeah. (laughs) And if other people aren't seeing that, I don't know what they're looking at. I mean, I think it comes down to that that last couplet in the third verse. Mm -hmm. If we look back at all the times that Palestine fought and bled just for the chance to get up in front of the UN and say what they wanted, all they ever wanted to say was, we're going to keep getting our homeland back yeah and that last couplet of i will live as a warrior i will remain a warrior i will die as a warrior until my country returns like what's left to be said not much not much they make it very clear i i think probably for me it's got to be a nine i think i'm gonna go 9.5 okay and x factor i mean it's punching pretty high it here is, too it is we might finally see slovenia dethroned <laughs> sorry slovenia but yeah i think for x factor for me i don't think it's perfect it's not maybe perfect the music did lack a little something something for me 
at parts. And and it does drag a little, which I think I'm going to mm-hmm. penalize it for an X factor rather than anywhere else. But I think yeah. I'm going to come out on a 7.5 here. Yeah, I think um, I think I'm going to go eight. All right. So let's take a little break then and tally up those scores. That brings us to a total score of 79.5. Unfortunately, it does not defeat Slovenia. It comes in third behind only Slovenia and Togo. Oh, yeah. Togo's anthem was awesome. I forgot about Togo a little bit, but that one was really good. Okay. So that's a pretty solid showing from Palestine. For our first country, that is not officially recognized on all levels as a country that's a pretty strong showing Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure what else there is to say i've been talking for a long (laughs) ass time about palestine and i think i've about exhausted everything i've got you know what you've earned rolling for your next country oh okay i i'm gonna say up front yes i do have one that i'm hoping for it to be because i can't and maybe i'm wrong but I can't think of any countries smaller and with fewer interactions with outside countries. I am hoping against hope to draw Micronesia right now. Okay. I know it's not going to happen. <laughs> Good I luck just to you. don't want to draw Israel is really what it comes down to. I mean, statistically, you're not going to get either of them. I've got a one in 206 <laughs> chance to get either, and that's not that bad. <laughs> So let's take a minute and roll the dice that might spell my doom. Okay. Okay, this is a number that could end up being Micronesia. All right, hit me. But I don't think so. What is it? Give me 119. 119. Hold on here. Let me just scroll up for a second. Okay. Okay. So, so you rolled Moldova. Okay, Which I is can live with Moldova. Only one below Micronesia. Damn. If you had rolled 118, you'd be looking at Micronesia right now. I can live with Moldova, you know? It yeah. didn't come to mind, but it fits the same sort of criteria of like, it's a small country, I think. And I I've think never so heard of any other country interacting with it in all my life. <laughs> okay. So that's what I love about this pick. I'm thrilled with my Moldova pick. Good. I hope it's a relaxing one for you. Um, and uh, we'll be back next week to uh, check in on Kate covering East Timor. That's right. I just want to give a little preview just so everyone can get hyped up about it. We will be having our very first guest on my Moldova episode. Woohoo! I will be reuniting with my college radio show partner, a guy by the name of Eric, and I cannot wait to get back into the booth with him. So check back in in a week for the coverage of East Timor with Kate, and in two weeks we will have on a guest to cover Moldova. Thank you for listening. Did we get something very wrong? 
Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC Podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong, and it will be corrected.